You are listening to How Bass Music Shaped British Society, a podcast series exploring the history of Jamaican sound system culture in Britain and how its legacy has revolutionised music, from sound, business and culture to people, preservation and society. What's really good people? My name is Ras Kwame, uh, DJ, presenter, broadcaster and music producer and sometime uh, record label boss if you like. Um, I was born in 1973 in West London, uh, Queen Charlotte uh, Hospital, Hammersmith to be precise. Uh, for some reason I always remember the hospital exactly. And um, yeah, here I am right here and now. So my first memory of a song in my household would probably be something on an album by the Vienna Boys Choir. Um, my dad was very much, um, very mixed in his attitude to music. Um, he comes from West Africa and came to the UK in the 50s and immediately began to assimilate and embrace everything European, including a varied range of music even though his roots were probably in traditional African music. So we'd have Simon and Garfunkel, we'd have the Vienna Boys Choir, we'd have Jimmy Cliff, we'd have Bob Marley, we'd have Trojan Records, we'd have My Boy Lollipop. And my early memories are of my mother in the house with one of those brown looking transistor radio things. And lots of music coming out of it and at the weekend, we'd play records on it. Um, sometimes my dad would take me to HMV in the West End and I'd get to buy a record whilst he was shopping and it'd usually be some kind of cartoon like uh, Mickey Mouse Brave Little Taylor. I remember that one specifically. That was one of the first pieces of vinyl he bought for me. And um, I have really strong memories of going to the record player it was one of the old school ones where you'd put a seven inch on or you put like 27 inches on and they'd all kind of turn themselves. And I was totally fascinated by that action of this thing. And then I gravitated to the fact that it was music coming out of it. And then I became a DJ literally in the household. I demanded to be the one who put on the 20 records. Give us, give us an idea of um, approximately what age you were at this point. At this age, I was probably about five. And you were allowed um, on the deck? I was allowed on the deck. Um, it was me and my older sister and my older brother, actually. Um, but I tended to dominate it because I just really liked the look of the record and the mechanic of, of, of a gramophone. I really, really liked that. So give us an idea of the difference, if there was a difference, between your taste, uh, or your, your dad's taste in music, and your mom's taste in music. If um, I'd say my dad was a wide-angled music guy. He was open to many things from rock to pop to reggae to African traditional music. Um, and my mother, from my recollection, wasn't much of a music person at all, but would always have the radio one and would appreciate music, but wouldn't have a particular artist, apart from Shirley Bassey, who I think she really, really liked. But I'm not sure if it was because of the music or if it was because of her. So... Mum didn't really have that much an opinion on it, but liked everything, and Dad totally top dominated it. And the kids were in the middle liking what they liked, really. Okay, take us forward in time to school. So you're now about 
10, 12 years old. And what I'm keen to get an understanding of is, at this point, how does your musical taste differ to your peers? And how do you fit in? And I say fit in in terms of if your folks are West African, what community are you fitting into at school? Right, at school, as far as memory serves me right, I went to school, uh, first of all, in Hounslow, West London, where I grew up. And the thing about being at school was I didn't really have a particular musical taste or a musical preference. We just went with the crowd. Um, the thing that we all watched that was most musically um, connecting us was Top of the Pops, which you couldn't miss. If you missed Top of the Pops, you wouldn't have anything to say in the playground the next day. So it was all about the Top of the Pops thing. Right, so in terms of my peers, as far as I can remember, we all listened to the same thing. I had an older brother who um, fastidiously collected cassettes and sometimes I'd get to go near them with his, this little tape recorder thing that you said back in the day, which would be like five keys on the thing and you, you could just hold it in one hand. And sometimes I'd get to play cassettes on there, but they'd usually be his selection. And he had a really weird taste in music because as I remember those days, a lot of the cassettes he'd be listening to would be like Frank Sinatra singing in the rain and stuff like that. And um, he veered a million miles away from that as we grow older. Um, but that's another story. So at the age of 11 years old, my parents relocate to Ghana, West Africa. So the whole family goes over there. So my musical awareness at this time is what you hear on Top of the Pops, um, any of the random groups that you get in the 70s slash early 80s. Uh, so in um, the late 70s, my parents moved to Ghana, uh, West Africa, taking the whole family along. Uh, that was myself, my brother, uh, my younger sister, and my older sister as well. And um, there the story kind of completely splits because this is where I really discover music and its value and what music is about as a social factor. Um, being in the UK, my exposure to music was either in the household, as I mentioned earlier, either through the gramophone from my mother being around my mother playing music, from my dad's varied record selection, or we'd go to parties, um, which he now tells me used to be generally West Indian parties uh, where everyone would go hang out. And sometimes you get African, Ghanaian traditional parties, which we'd go to a lot as well. And the soundtrack to that, I now realize was reggae primarily and American funk and soul, James Brown kind of stuff. But I just remember this being like the highlight of the week and it being a real big deal around the place. Then I go to Ghana and everything changes. So you're kind of 12-ish? I'm kind of 12-ish, yeah. This is kind of a crucial stage in growing up in terms Very of crucial. developing peer groups and whatever. Yeah. So this move to Ghana means you start again in terms of developing. Yeah. This. So what happens there and what was music's role in developing these relationships? Right, so I get to Ghana and first of all, life is completely different. Um, first of all, life is outdoor a lot more than it used to be. Um, your, my peer group kind of changed as in, if you think of West Africa in the late 70s, early 80s in terms of social structure, it was very divided. You had the wealthy, 
and then you had the not so wealthy and then you had the bottom of the um, social situation if you like so in West African society everybody mingles there is no division between the kids between the rich and the poor so I'd hang out with kids whose parents or themselves would be around traditional West African music a lot um, and then I'd be exposed to that we're talking fella Kuti, sounds of jazz and high life of the 70s, um, colonial brass band music, all coming out of the radio. And then I'd go home and my dad would be on his European thing and getting his um, Simon and Garfunkel records and Bridge Over Troubled Water on a Saturday and a Sunday and, and, and doing it like that. So there was a big musical awakening within me in that I got more exposed to music in society as being a really integral part. As much as I was exposed to it in the UK, I didn't realise how much it was a feature of everything. Birthdays, weddings, funerals. Um, I began to realise how music was actually not just about electronics, it was about people exposed to a lot of live percussion stuff. Um, traditional singing, tribal singing and dancing. It was just a much wider exposure to music than I was accustomed to and I began to realise that music was a very influential thing in African society. Comme vous le savez, chers amis, la mort est quelque chose qui vient en tout être humain. Que ce soit la mort du père, la mère, le meilleur ami, ou le mal au cœur. Aujourd'hui, moi, Kablan Damoa, je suis devenu accompagnant de mes amis. Oh, que dois-je faire de ma vie Cette mort m'a rendu brûlé. Je dis bien, chers amis, la mort est quelque chose qui vient à tout être humain. Que ce soit la mort de terre, la mer, le meilleur ami, qui fait mal au cœur.
And so you're now what, 15-ish? So now I'm getting to 14, uh, 13, 14. I've gone to secondary school, um, actually more to secondary school in Ghana. And somewhere in my first year, for my birthday present, amongst the stack was a Bob Marley album <coughs> called Natty Dread. That album. Wow. <laughs> you nod. So, you're 15, you're exposed to this bit of vinyl that is, um, I was going to say, an epiphany moment. What impact did this album have on you at that time? And we're kind of bearing in mind that you're experiencing this in Ghana. Mm -hmm. what, what impact did this album have? Right. The thing about um, Ghana and secondary school when I was there was we were growing up as okay I went to private school in Ghana so we were growing up as a set of slightly privileged kids we're looking for rebellion the rebellion was not to be found in the local music and it was not to be found in the pop music the rebellion we soon discovered by our old elders in the school at the time was all about reggae music reggae music from Jamaica was the one music that was referencing number one our Africanness in a very direct matter manner uh, it was referencing our blackness it was referencing black leaders of the time of the 60s and 70s your Jomo Kenyatta's your Haile Selassie's your Kwame Nkrumah's your Marcus Garvey's um, and the songs were practically singing about going back to Africa where we were uh, in a place where in all of its beauty you know you have the downside of Africa the reality of it the realness the grittiness so that resonated with us and soon that became our central message so by the time I had the Natty Dread album um, number one I was just gripped by the look of the person um, I was gripped by the cover the fact that it had words in it and you could learn all the words to the songs then I became gripped by the songs and the lyrical content and then the whole of my peer group began to introduce me to more artists Burning Spear, Black Uhuru, Steel Pulse, Aswad, um, Third World all of the classics really and truly and the, the taste in Ghana's at the time for reggae was more of the international band variety so acts that were signed to like Island Records things that will come out on Trojan Records and no, not so much of a dancehall culture and singles. We knew about the big international artists that were coming through. And yeah, that was the music that resonated with me the most. And I've been a fan of that music ever since and have never gone from the love of it, of the perception of it, of what it stands for, of what it means and how it can influence your life. I wasn't taking music as anything really serious, but I was really good at collecting music. So within the first couple of years, I'd be the go-to guy for cassettes, what's hot, what's not. I had my UK connection still, I had family abroad, so I had people sending me cassettes, um, radio recordings of David Ruddigan and Tony Williams and all of these amazing radio shows. Um, there's another R&B guy, Chris, Chris, uh, Chris Blackburn, Robbie Vincent, all these guys. So we get this music on cassette. So 
I was, if you like, through being a go-to guy for music, sort of like becoming a bit of a DJ. It wasn't long before I was the one who got to play in the dorms party and, you know, became even more of a collector. But that was just a thing that you did. It's a cool thing to do, great way to get girls and blah, blah, blah. So that's what we did. I just happened to be really, really good at it because I had this kind of mind state where I really liked to, to fastidiously file things and get things in the right order and if I had album number two I had to have album number one and I'd have to follow the whole course of it and I'd have to have them all in the right order in my trunk and that kind of stuff so it was just like a little background thing even though I was quite involved in the music itself but career-wise I was just heading towards university had plans to come back to the UK after my A-levels and continue on with it and I had no real clear idea of what I wanted to be although my dad had bandied doctor, lawyer, accountant, any of the key professions, he wanted me to, to get into that. And I, I presumed I would at the time. So bring us forward in time now. Um, you've done the exams. Yeah. You're still in Ghana. Yeah. Um, you've identified this passion, let's call it, yeah. for the music. At what point, I assume it comes from parents, Yeah. <laughs> you, you're forced or you're asked to make some kind of choice, even an initial choice, right. in terms of this career pathway? Okay, um, given Ghana to Ghanaian traditional family values, you'd generally be going with whatever it is your parents intended for you till about maybe 20 or when you could get out of the thing. Um, but generally 2021, 20, it was you being told what you were going to be doing. Um, so I'm coming from a peer group of we were all heavily into reggae. I'm talking, if you go back to my old secondary school, you'll probably find song lyrics written on the walls from those days. Um, and there is a whole generation of African people from the 70, late 70s and through the 80s who grew up and got their sense of philosophy, if you like, just from listening to reggae music in a very, very, very deep way. I mean, I actually had books where I'd sit down, listen to songs, write down the lyrics song by song, word for word, as close as I could get to it and have that there. Um, so in terms of like that becoming anything more than so, I wasn't to discover that until I got back to the UK and had some kind of freedom, to be fair. And that didn't come for a little while. O-levels, head down, passed those okay, went back to the same school, a-levels and yeah, maths, economics, French. So you're all the way up to 18, 19. Yeah. And still in Ghana. Still in Ghana. Still following, let's call it the traditional pathway. Yeah. Something has to give. Right. The thing is, my, my father is, is very musical. So, and he's, he's, he's not as traditional as your average Ghanaian parent. Obviously, he'd been in Europe for X amount of years um, before making the move back to Ghana. So he was a little bit more liberal with it. So he could appreciate me being into music and being a popular musical guy as social. Um, so there was no real resistance because I was playing along and the assumption was, yes, you're going to go to university and blah, blah, blah. Something gives when I come back to England go to university um it was called city of london polytechnic and while i was there it turned into the university of guildhall um and my father remained in africa um at the time we had a bit of a family tragedy in that my younger sister lost her eyesight so my mother returned to the uk with her um, and set up home in the UK again, and my father remained in Africa. Could imagine, 
busy man, single parent in Ghana, lots of household help, lots of aunties, blah, 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 running around. He just let the thing go. So I was able to just run with it and do what I did and, you know, get even deeper into music and all kinds of stuff. And I get back to England, I've got my mother's influence. I'm a big boy now. I'm like 18, 19. No one ain't telling me what to do. So by 19, 20, by 20, I'm out of the house and I'm doing my thing. Um, even though I'm still going to university and studying, so it's all good. But now I'm a DJ. Now I can buy records. Now I'm in a social group where there is demand for people to play music. Um, and suddenly I lock into this music thing, starting from the reggae, widening out my taste as well. So but I lock into to actually working with music. Coming back from Ghana, you have to again establish a new network. Yeah. How did this come about? Are you just going straight into a Ghanaian connection? Right, so I'm coming to England and I'm coming to live with my mother and she is part of mainstream society but also has her African roots and her African connections. Um, I'm primarily around that but I'm going to university now. So, how can I put it? Um, I get my own network of friends. We're in Jamaica, it's the late 80s, mid to late 80s. I'm a black guy. Dominant influence is Jamaican culture. It's not even West Indian culture at the time. It's Jamaican culture, that's the cool thing. That's where all the musical influence is coming from. That's who everyone's trying to be like. That's what is calling me in. That's calling me in because I've already come from Ghana with a massive knowledge and awareness of reggae. So I can promise you there are people in Ghana who've never been to Jamaica, never been to England, never been to anywhere, but they're more Jamaican than the, the reggae guys. It was a little bit like that. So my finding a peer circle was naturally tending towards where reggae music was played, where the guys would hang out, and I kind of gravitated towards that immediately. So I had an interesting set of friends from my Ghanaian life, another set of friends from my Caribbean influence, and another set of university kids which was all mixed up and everyone came from everywhere. But you arrived now with a skill set. Yeah. Um, and a knowledge base. Mm -hmm. um, that at that time uh, was lauded. It was people were keen to integrate through that skill set, and there were opportunities because uh, during that period, uh, Jamaican pop music or Jamaican popular music mm -hmm. is the cool music. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. How do you move from a smaller network of people now? into a wider network? Is it the music that gives you that opportunity? Are you being given gigs? Right, so I am at university now and amongst the network, the Afro-Caribbean Society, I start to play um, social room gigs. And if anyone had a birthday party, they'd send for me. I had a part-time job working in a bingo hall um, on the gate, saved up all my money, would buy records. It wasn't long before I had the basics of a mobile disco around me and started to advertise myself to take bookings. Um, I'd go around any wine bar, any pub, anywhere I could get to play, I was up for doing it. And eventually my curiosity tells me that, okay, what you're doing is not really at the core of this thing. There is another place. You need to like get amongst them. Um, so I start to listen to, I think it was a radio station called Time Radio, 
at the time uh, in London, northwest London, it was based, I think, Harlesden, Fresh FM, and I start to identify players on the radio, key characters, I start going to the promotions, I find out who was Bagger John, the promoter, I find out who was um, this Diamonds, the girl's best friend, and I'd start going around that circuit. I'd go to clubs like um, Tudor Rose in Southall, um, Mona Lisa in Southall again, Granaries, uh, what was the one in East London? Maybe the clubs around at the time, I'd just start going to these places and start meeting and talking to people. And at the same time, I was kind of plotting on what to seriously do after this university thing. Because um, now I'd realise you can make a career in this music thing somehow if you really get in there and, and do something. And I'd start to make a little bit of money out of doing these little local gigs. Um, so there it begins to get more serious. Here's a question. You're in London at the height of sound system culture. You've not mentioned a sound. A lot of people follow the sound. You've, it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're yeah. taking an alternative I'm taking a very alternative path. route. Yeah. Because, okay, let me go back a bit. Coming from Ghana, as much as it was a reggae influence, um, it was the breakout of early hip hop. And that was a strong cultural force as well. Now, as much as my parents were musically quite wide, I've always been like that. I can appreciate extremes of music. I'm quite comfortable listening to a great piece of Beethoven as I am listening to a great piece of Bob. Um, and very comfortable, no pretense thing. I can appreciate that. I can really appreciate this. I had this checkered network of how I would socially hang out. So I'd go to raves with Fabio and Groove Rider and feel completely comfortable there.
was into hip-hop, so I got Curtis blowing, Grandmaster flashing, that kind of sound around me. Bobby Brown and all these guys are coming out. And there are reggae clubs. Not necessarily sounds active. You could go to Gossips um, and get a good reggae set. And there was a whole bunch of wine bars in Northwest London where you could go and listen to good reggae. So my understanding when I got here, having listened to loads of cassettes of radio DJs, again, Tony Williams, David Rodigan, I didn't really actually have a wide awareness of sound system culture per se. Thinking back, there were sound systems in Ghana and massive ones. One of the most popular of the time being a sound called Skyhawks. Um, but completely different to the Jamaican sound system in terms of the technology in that no one would be on the mic. It was just records playing. And maybe you might get one guy pop up every now and again and do this thing. So sound, sound system culture was a discovery from me getting into that little club circuit and seeing, oh, there's more to this. There's actually big sounds and, and blah, blah, blah. So there wasn't one particular sound system that I, I, I followed. I'd say the first one that caught me my attention, even though I'd heard of quite a few of them, like the Saxons and the Coxons, the first sound that really, really caught my attention was a sound called Nasty Love from Brixton. Um, and I'd go to their all dayers, and that was a really, really eye-opening experience. But then again, they, these would be in nightclubs, so there was no sound system to it. You know, I think that, that discovery came to me further when I went to my first big gig, I think it was Brixton Town Hall and I think it was Coxon. And the overwhelming bass made me understand something that night, you know. Because you can imagine growing up in Ghana, we're not listening to reggae on big sound systems, we're listening to them on small cassette recorders. And my first experience of bass at that volume, deep within the culture, was crazy. Like, absolutely mind-blowing. The loudest thing I'd heard probably prior to that moment was probably being at a record school night in Ghana where they might play a bit of Bob Marley and a bit of the Burning Spear and the international stuff. And I remember poignantly hearing um, Eddie Grant um, frontline for the very first time and thinking, wow, this is electronic music with reggae and it sounds like this and it sounds like that and that just threw me again. Like, wow, you can do like that, 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 that song. Eddie Grant, Frontline, that's what got me into music, making music, that sound. That was quite revolutionary at the time. Very revolutionary. I mean, I don't remember hearing anything like it before. I can't remember if there was a record by Clear. There's an American group called Clear, K-L-E-E-R, called Intimate Connection, that had this bass kind of thing going on again. That was another one that really, really drew me into like, wow electronic music has a crazy potential and I definitely want to do something with it. Um, and I had a friend at the time who was also from Ghana. He made the transition to the UK as well. And he was a proper musician um, in the school bands that we used to do. He could play the drums, the bass, knew all the Steel Pulse song, had all the lyrics. He used to have pen pals abroad sending him records and had the belts and the hats and the garments, everything that we, I desired at that time to look like. You know what I mean? He had it all. So through him, he, he really opened my ideas to music potential as well. And when electronic music started getting programmed on computers, he was the first man I meant to and the first man who had that set up. He, he couldn't even use it properly, but that's where we, we really went deeper. So now we're kind of mid-80s if you're talking about that. Well, just early we're mid-80s and approaching the 90s. Right. So at this point, surely there's a career 
focus right now. So at this point, I come up with my little plan that I was going to finish university. I think it was 1991. I was going to finish university. I actually took another year on doing something else that had nothing to do with it and just to keep the thing going, get the other grant, because it was grant in them days. Uh, as long as you were studying something, you could get money in the government to sponsor you, blah, blah, blah. Kept buying my records. And then I decided I was going to open a record shop. Um, there was a 12-inch boom in the UK at the time. My degree was in economics, so I felt like I had a bit of business head on me. Um, and I set my course like, okay, Hounslow, West London, there was no record shop. It wasn't London, London, that's like outside London, even further out. Londoners will tell you Hounslow's not even London really and truly. So I thought, right, okay, boom, no record shop here, just an hour price down the road. I'm going to open a shop um, selling specialist records. Made a connect with one of my Ghanaian friends in Hounslow at the time, who was more about the dance side of things, who I used to go to dance raves with got together with him, he represented the dance and the housey side of things, I represented the more black side of things if you like, the reggae and the hip hop and blah 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 and the R&B came together and we opened the shop. 1992 was the year, um, the year I finished uni. Record shop, first step on the ladder. First step on the ladder. Economic background, Economic. plugs into your dad. There you go. Daddy's happy, daddy actually gives you money. Um, backs up the Prince's Trust for the venture. I sold it well. There is a 12-inch boom, you know. There's a lot of guys getting into music. There was a guy who I think went to school with me in Ghana who was in the charts at the time, or had been in the charts a year or so before, or a couple of years before that. His name was Danny D. Um, Acid was the name of the tune. I'm like, look, Dad, look, Ghana boys are coming over and it's all happening. You know, it can work. And yeah, he backed me on it for the first couple of years. What happens after the shop? So I get to the shop now, so now I'm more of a, a bit more of a DJ. Um, I'm actually doing gigs in wine bars, pubs, birthdays, taking bookings. I'm officially like a mobile DJ now. Um, I go by the name of DJ Ravers. The name of the sound was the Ravers Movement. Um, when it was a black or a more urban thing, it's a sound. When it's a white or a more crossover thing, it's a mobile disco. We had all that going on. Um, so I was also looking for a cheap supply of records. I wanted to get my records at cost price. That was another motivation for getting the shop. And plus having a record shop, you could have all the records you want. So this was like paradise time for me. So we opened the shop and yeah, we start business. And yeah, everything goes really, really well for the first few years. We start making money. Um, and then I start turning my, my mind to music production. Um, and in 1992, I had really good hustling skills, I have to say, for the music industry. I hadn't long been from Ghana, but I could talk the talk and walk the walk. Um, and I'd heard about Soul to Soul. Um, and I'd heard about 10 records. In those days, you could look at the vinyl and see who was the A&R. So I find Rob Manley, and I think there was even a phone number on there. So I phoned Rob Manley and say, yo, listen, mate, months time I'm gonna come and check you with record this is gonna be the wickedest thing forget the soul to soul thing this is this is the one I hadn't even made the record um, so I look at the back of a newspaper I think it was the loot magazine at the time I see a studio advertised for hire in Exmouth Market Farringdon and I phone up the guy and I say yeah I want to come in and make a record and I had this guy who I was working with um, at the bingo hall his name was Tony Anthony Ford he could sing a bit so we wrote a song, you know, and I said, yeah, man, let's go to the studio, make the song, get into the charts. And off we go, happy as Larry. Made the song, pressed the song up on vinyl. 
did a deal with some random company in, in Farringdon, a guy called Lucas Langdon, who had this little white label uh, operation going on, and took the record to Rob Manley, bottled his brass. So, how do you describe that production, stylistically, genre? Stylistically, okay, so we're taking the big electronic drums of the Paul Hardcastle thing, and then we're trying to put some sweet melodies on top. Um, this, there was a style of music going around, which was all old records, but it was called Rare Groove in that era. So we're trying to have a bit of influence of that in it, put a little bit of R&B in it, and I would describe the record as like um, an early 90s, but late 80s sounding record. The record was, it wasn't a joke, but it wasn't the greatest record in the world, and it definitely was not something to be comparing yourself to Soul to Soul with, that's for certain. But big up Rob Manley, anywhere in there, car, he showed me love at that meeting, put me right, <laughs> showed me about the game and the business, and set me on my merry way. But that was my first connection to the music industry, and I'm never looked back. So you gatecrashed production? I gatecrashed production, totally and 100%. And I did so well at it that the guy I went to see was a producer called um, Peter Pritchard. He was actually a lecturer at Guildhall. Uh, no, um, it's the famous music school. I forget the name. Um, but he was a pianist there, like grade 13 pianist and blah, blah, blah. And he was also signed to RCA Records with an artist called Lance Ellington. Um, Lance Ellington was a singer, a very R&B sound. He'd do all the music. And through the hip hop influence was coming with, in, he noticed I could program that stuff and knew everything about that. So he just kept me around him. And I slowly started to get more and more on the ladder. And he'd have clients like, PJ and Duncan. PJ and Duncan is Ant and Deck. I programmed a lot of the, the, the things, the hip hop drums on the album, and you know, I did more production on things that I don't even know about that I did production on. But I was really, really good at it, and he became my mentor and really showed my, me into the music business. Um, and after about a year and a half working with him, because he had the music industry connections, he was really tight with a guy called Steve Wolf who was A&R at MCA at the time. Took me to Stillwolf, Steve Wolf, and said, yo, this guy's really, really good. Steve Wolf said, yeah, all right, let's cry him on a couple of bits. And then I made, a, I got to remix a record by Shante Moore and another artist called London Jones at the time. And those were my first two official 12 inches in the shop, my name on them, like, wow, I've arrived. By this time I'm called Rasquami. I've got the baby dreads growing on, shop's doing great business. And yeah, here I go, top producer in the end.
So you've transitioned now from the record shop into beats, mixing, production, mm -hmm. and you're now officially engaged by major labels. Major labels, yeah. Um, and <clears throat> I was going to say major artists, but Anton Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll skirt around that one. Different style. <laughs> it's a totally different style. So <clears throat> moving forward now, it's very difficult to sustain any position achieved in the industry. Yeah. So you're now a producer. Yeah. Um, the scene's changing very quickly. Yes. We're going through jungle, drum and bass. Yeah. We're moving into even the trip-hop space. Mm -hmm. How do you manage to survive at this point? Because lots of people having one hit disappear. Right. Well, youth and tenacity plays a major part. From being in a record shop, I'd have to say it was probably the most advantageous place you could be to have your own record shop in the music industry in that era. Um, that meant you were getting into contact with all sorts of the music industry. You were getting in touch with and learning about music distribution and you'd see all the key distributors come to you. Um, you'd learn about punters, people buying music, the mentality, what they like, what they don't like, how records sell, how to run a shop and keep it successful, what to buy, not what to buy, what not to buy a lot of, what stays on the shelf. It was like a mini learning of the music industry and also because you had the printed press, printed press would actually go to places and interview people who were doing interesting things on the scene. So you get exposure to the PR side of things as well. So from that background, I kind of learned the basics of everything I knew and began to make more and more contacts in the music industry. So now I'm going to Island Records and I'm meeting like Darkest, Darkest Beast, who's now the boss, 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 gone to America now and running uh, Universal, blah, blah, blah. And I was an integral, my, my story's really weird because musically, I've worn so many different hats with the full commitment to the wearing of the hat. So I was, I was as hip hop as I was dancehall, yeah, and I could go to jungle raves and I could go to soul R&B raves and I could also go to acid house raves. In those days, you wouldn't find people doing that. You're either a soul man, a reggae man, a hip hop man, or whatever you were in, you were in a that. And there was no intermingling of the thing. So I was quite unique in like, I used to flit around all these kind of scenes. And plus I had the studio background as well. I started working with local British talent. Um, so we're talking Skinny Man, Phoebe One, Richie Dan in his early days. And now I set up a group with Dennis, my business partner in the record shop, Sugar Shack Records in Hounslow. And we've gone back to Peter, the mentor, who has a bit of dough for this. And a studio set up and said, yeah, I wanted to, we want to make an act. And the act was going to be called Ghetto Kings and a Queen. And it was supposed to be some kind of emulation of the Fugees. So it was me and Dennis and this hot singer called Anne-Marie Smith, and we're trying to do our version. And we made this really, really, really good album, in my humble opinion. Um, I had a bit of profile as a producer, having worked, started working with major labels and such and such at the time. But we made this album. And because we didn't have much business experience, I had a relationship with my mentor, Peter Pritchard, that worked really well. But now I was bringing other people into the relationship who were not as happy to go along with things as they were. So, cut a long story short, a couple of members in the group refused to sign a contract. 
I had proper exposure to the music now, so the contract wasn't looking too hot to be anyway. So we fell out and the album never came out. But from that session, I had got vocals or I would, had been in the studio with Phoebe One, who was one of the hot female rappers of the day. She had her deal, major label. I had an artist by the name of Richie Dan. Another one called Vincent J. Alvis was on the records. Um, Skinny Man and a couple of others. At around 93, 94, the sound of Garage starts from the UK. So I'm in a record shop, so I can see this taking place before my eyes and I can see what's happening. What's happening is the American producers who used to make house music would always have a dub mix on the B or the C or the D side and Mandem would start speeding up those records, old school turntables, it goes from minus eight to plus eight, we start playing those records at plus six, suddenly it takes a little vibe and it's got a bit of a dubby thing to it because it is straight four four click with big bass line and then people start rapping over it. Boom, Speed Garage comes into the thing. Okay, so we've refused to sign our deal with Peter Pritchard. Speed Garage is coming in. I'm like, yo, Dennis, you know what? Your side of the shop seems to be popular now, you know, fam. Mequistata Garage thing. Dennis had toyed with making music at the time, um, had never done anything serious. And through the shop, we'd attracted quite a few dance music producers around us, like MJ Cole, Groove Chronicles. People like that would come and be around the shop. So, I'm like, yo, let's make a garage tune, innit? You know. And this guy we knew called Will, he had a demo or something that he was trying to get out there. I'm like, well, this is really easy. You just get the master, you go and cut the lacquer, and then, you know, you do this and that. We get some TPs and you get the thing going. It's nothing long. So he gives, he kind of rents us the record. Dennis does some additional production on it. And then we put the record out. That was one of the first UK Speed Garage Records, a record called Over You. Uh, we put the record out. One of the biggest Speed Garage records ever. Dominating scenes, blah, blah, blah. We sampled some Terminator X Public Enemy business. That was what I would bring to the table. Made that record. That went flying out the sh shelves. Came up with the name M Dubs. His name was Dennis M. The music was dubby. We called it M Dubs. Remember, at this time, you're not supposed to be a bashment guy doing house. That couldn't work, it wouldn't look right. So I'm quite happy for it to be called M-dubs and like, you know, just be in the background and keep my hip hop and dance all identity clear. Um, the sound evolves from Speed Garage into two-step. Now the whole of the hood's looking at this music thinking, whoa, we can eat. I'm like, well, reggae's my thing. I want to add some reggae to this. Let's see what it sounds like. Because we've been working on the Ghetto Kings and the uh, Queen project, all of the artists who featured on that, we just moved them onto the garage thing. So I made a record with Richie Dan, or we made a record with Richie Dan called Over Here, a garage anthem to this day. We made Bump and Grind with Lady Saw, garage anthem to this day. We made Over You, just this funny two-step instrument where we were just sampling random records. Biggest MC riding record of the garage scene ever. You know, no gas, like absolutely huge. We weren't even sure about some of these records when we were putting them out, but the streets exploded for them. And we could not press up them records fast enough. Um, people came to identify us with the bashment garage thing, what we have going on, you know, which was different to everyone else because everyone from that background was purely housed and they didn't want to mix it up with any sort of rapping. We brought that in. But here's the point. At that point, <clears throat> surely you were pressured by the majors now to say, come inside. Um... Well, 
my exposure to the majors at this time was still mainly through Peter Pritchard. So I hadn't got into the thing where I was going to majors looking for plenty of work. They were sending me remixes by the pound to do anyway. And the garage sound was the sound of the street. And the street sound, you could press it up yourself, mate. There was no need for no label in this thing. And we would press it up by the thousands and just, yeah, it was, it was a great time. That for me was probably the most lucrative time of the UK black music industry that I've come across to date. And give I us, know give, we're in a time when there's big figures going around, but not like that. In those days we were getting proper money. Give us an idea of the kind of, well, time period. Yeah. And the type of earnings, just to give us, so we can contrast it with today. Right. So then, being that we had our own studio upstairs, we would make a record, bring it downstairs, test the record in the shop with the punters. If they said they liked it, we would go and press them up for 50p a copy, white label. By the time you've done the sleeve and all the artwork and everything, a pound a copy. For us as M-dubs, being as we were one of the hot production teams, we could retail from the shop without me even moving, we'd be selling 500 of that. Early white label, seven pounds, no hitching. And we'd sell off the thing and people would want more and we still wouldn't have it. By the time it gets released, 3.99, 4.99 is the hot one in its limited press. And for the time the shop was open, there was no title that we made that didn't stop pressing for the time the shop was open. And we was there for about 10 years. So this is two big men going from ages mid to late 20s to early 30s, living their lives. So you can imagine the amount of, you know, you know, we survived with it and we had really nice young people lives. Like we had big whips and the whole bag of stuff going on. So in the UK, this is a period that is not really documented. One of the reasons when talking to even academics, they say, oh, well, it's all white labels, mate. We didn't know right. what. But it's another thing, we'll come back to yeah. that. So this is a, a really lucrative period. Business is going well. Um, you're in the shop, you're making records, you're a producer. You have artists that you're in contact with mm -hmm. now. Where does your career take you to next? Right, so I'm in that scenario. Everything is going beautifully well. Uh, we're making a little bit of dough, as I said, enough to keep single men going and, and really, really happy anyway. We've branched out into promotion as well. We had a record shop, we were in Hounslow, nearest spot where you could have um, a big thing going and was Ealing. Hired out the Broadway Boulevard, we had our regular monthly event going on and everything was going really, really well. And then we are now going through a cycle of success. The thing about the cycle of success is you don't know what you're going to be or what you're going to be like when a cycle of success hits you. When you suddenly get money, when all the man them say, yeah, blood, wagwa, you're thing loud, big up yourself. When all the girl them say, hey, wagwa, darling, your thing looks smooth and all these kind of things, it changes you. I don't care who you are. If you've never had that before, you don't know what you're going to be like by the end of this process. So, as a lot of the acts of the time, the garage acts, different ways, you know. So I'm there thinking to myself, well, what am I going to do with my career now? towards the end of the period because I always try and start thinking early so I see the declining garage music going down and I see that British black music in terms of the reggae very independent not on the radio American music totally dominating culture kind of changing 
Puff Daddy and Notorious B.I.G. and that kind of sound and bling culture coming in. UK radio not interested in any sound of black music at all. Nothing. You're nothing. Nothing. Right, there's nothing moving. So I'm a producer. So I'm coming from UK Garage. I'm trying to get back on the hip hop and the R&B thing now. I see there's nothing going on here. So I'm like, well, we need to start a revolution. I don't know what kind of revolution I'm going to start, but this is the late 90s. Rinse that Iron Napa, all of that hurly burly's gone on. Thankfully, I've got a profile in the business and one of the guys I used to listen to in the earlier 80s was a guy called Wilbur Wilberforce. I find out where Wilbur Wilberforce is playing at and go and check the dance and hear about a thing coming up called BBC One Extra. I'm like, I'm a broadcaster now, fam. <laughs> Wilbur's like, all right, what can you do? I've done a bit of pirate radio at the time. Um, I think I'd been on Fresh FM and I'd done another station, dance station that used to play hardcore called Green Apple, uh, based in Slough of all places. Um, so I had a little bit of radio ex experience and everyone used to say you were quite good. So Wilbur tells me to go and make a demo. So me being a producer, I go and make a demo like I make a demo. <laughs> like not, not a mic and just let's just play some song. My demo was the baddest demo of all the demos he got and he confessed that, yo, your demo's like next level. Come into the studio and do a pilot. So I go into the studio. Um, producer at the time was a lady called Ruby Mulrain. She got me Rodney P to do a mock interview and the rest is history. Suddenly I'm a broadcaster now. BBC One Extra launches. I come up with a concept called 100% Homegrown. True, I'm going through a revolution and the people that are not supporting my thing like they used to. I'm like, Chuck, where's the all UK music? Where's the music that brings all the UK black music together? When you look at jazz, you have Giles Peterson and these men. When you look at reggae, reggae you have Rudigan. When you look at hip-hop, you have Westwood. When you look at R&B, you have Trevor Nelson. When you look at Garage, you have the Dream Team. So where's the one that's, you know, you know, one extra starting, they've got all their bases covered. I'm like, I need to invent a new thing, and my thing is going to be strictly UK music. We're bigging up UK black music and culture, and we're going to call it 100% homegrown. That's it. Introduced me to Ray Paul, senior producer at the time. Ray Paul like, you know what fam, that idea's got legs on it. Come with the thing. History. From 2002, I'm a broadcaster now. Still DJing, still got a little hand in the production thing, still trying to get things going. But now my CV says broadcaster at the top. I work for the BBC. Mum and dad are doing backflips, it's the BBC. Oh my God, we can't believe he's got his career back. It's all working again now. And absolutely loving it, yeah. So, this is a, when we look back, yeah. we can say you had a career. Yeah. From that position, you couldn't look forward and predict this. Yes, yes, and see that coming. And what we're trying to ask people is, what is this thing called black British music? Is it a thing? From my perspective, I think it is a thing that has not been named or referenced as a whole, but has many strands which are the very strands that come from early rave music, hardcore, drum and bass, UK bass in between, then we go um, speed garage, then we go garage, then we go breakbeat coming out of garage, coming into a little like six months of this prototype dubstep sound, which is where I stopped producing that music. And then that sound turns into dubstep, 
and they slow it down and start making electronic reggae, let's face it, you know. Um, onto what comes next. Then you get UK Funky and then you get into, no, UK Funky, yeah, dubstep UK Funky. Well, then it goes for a little housey thing. And now you kind of got Afrobeat, if you like, of the representations of it. All of this, our thing has not been named, in my opinion, but all of these strands are it, if you see what I mean. So it's not one thing for it. It's not been recognized as such. No one's done anything intellectual with it and said, okay, this is what it is and this is the product of us. It's just got these little strands of, of, of scenes, if you like. Scenes to the UK and styles to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm.